and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, as you know, for many, many years I've been saying that anything can happen, but of course that's going on now 24-7, and in part that's kind of kind of be the back theme of tonight's program, because we're going to be looking at the last uh, 20 years and maybe 50 years. We'll, we'll get into that as we get into the morning. As you know, if you pay any attention to the news these days, there's uh, all kinds of strange things that are happening. A lot of it, unfortunately, rather negative. So I thought we'd lead tonight with two related stories that are extraordinarily positive. I don't know whether you've all been paying attention, but on Wednesday of last week, uh, SpaceX launched four uh, civilians, four amateurs, as the mainstream media has called them, four not quite so ordinary people. In other words, four people who were not astronauts for the first time in a combined mission where there were no Air Force officers, there were no pilots of of spacecraft. There were no uh, special NASA uh, gung-ho, you know, astronauts on board. Four civilians, uh, a billionaire, and three people that he paid for uh, with his uh, funding to SpaceX to basically um, rent a rocket and a spacecraft, which they call Reliant, Uh, Or No, I'm sorry, Resilience. I'm thinking of another ship. And they spent three days in Earth orbit uh, up to about 360 miles, which is about 100 miles higher than the International Space Station. And they had 15 sunrises and sunsets per, per day. And they spent three days in orbit conducting all kinds of medical tests. The, the other uh, crew members, in addition to um, uh, Jerry Isaacman, who was the billionaire, who uh, funded the mission, there was a uh, young lady, 29 years old, from uh, St. June's Hospital. She's a physician's assistant. She was the civilian medical uh, officer of the, of the flight of the expedition. And then there was um, uh, Sion... Um, provost who was the um she had tried out to be a nasa astronaut and uh, is a geo specialist in in space science and planetary science uh, she's on board as the kind of uh, science officer and then there was a gentleman um, from uh, lockheed martin who won a contest and he'd applied to to uh, be part of the uh, mission and lo and behold must call him up and said you're it. I, I don't think it was Musk. I think it was uh, uh, Isaacman. Anyway, these four civilians spent three days in an amazing experience, and and we're going to talk much more about it in detail next week when we do another space update on things that are occurring both in Earth orbit with Musk and with Mars. There has been some new developments vis-a-vis the unmanned Perseverance mission to the surface of Mars. We have found more things, including a collection of objects, which I'm very tempted to call Ron's Ruins, after Ron Gerbrand, who's one of our imaging team members. He first spotted them, 
he's now got many overlapping images of the same set of stuff. And so we're going to kind of regale you with some amazing new images from Mars, uh, which are getting better. They're getting better at the color calibrations are getting better with focus there. It's only taken them what eight months, something like that. Anyway, um, that's item number one in radio with pictures. And for those of you who are new to the show, uh, as an adjunct to radio, we have an image set of files where you can actually go on the web and look at imaging and stories and videos and uh, other links that we provide, our guests provide during the program. So if you're on a smartphone, it's really simple to uh, simulcast both uh, the audio from the show as well as the imaging. And the way you go to there, where you find it, is you go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. And you click on the banner, which for tonight says, rather dramatically, 9-11, 20 years after, what have we learned, part two. You click on that, that will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you see fast links to items. Uh, click on my items, Richard. That will take you to my stories, my imaging, my connections that I think are relevant to the conversation of the evening. And right there, you'll see number one is the uh, uh, SpaceX All Civilian Space Flight. Of course, this is a story updated for after they landed, which was mountain time yesterday evening. About five o'clock my time, they splashed down just off Cape Canaveral in the Atlantic Ocean because there was a storm in the Gulf of Mexico, which is their normal reentry point. And they uh, were recovered within about 40 minutes and then helicoptered from uh, the recovery ship to Cape Canaveral, uh, the Kennedy Space Center proper. And uh, I believe now they've all gone back to their you know, various homes and are, are spending a, an absolutely amazing post-mission time you know, regaling their families and friends and neighbors and whoever will listen what their amazing three days in space was like. And I'm going to talk about this in great more detail next weekend, but just to give you a heads up, we have now entered in terms of Earth orbit, the second age of space, which was kicked off uh, a couple, three months ago by uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, his famous British counterpart, who's the owner of uh, Virgin Air, Air, Airlines and um, is is trying with unmanned orbital flights to give people like four minutes of weightlessness. Well, when you go into orbit, you are weightless from the time that you are accelerated enough and the engines cut off to remain in free fall around the earth and around and around and around. So these guys who just came back had four, I'm sorry, three days of zero gravity. And one of the really cool things, and if you look at the uh, photo, which is the link to the actual story in item number one in my section, you notice that because they were not docking with the International Space Station, they have that front hatch where they go through a tunnel and they can go into the space station when they're docked. Well, Given that they were not docking, what they decided to do was something really brilliant. They put a hemispherical dome over the end of the tunnel, which is exposed to space when that door, that hatch, is swung open to the side and remains open during the mission. And uh, that, that gave them extraordinary views, 180-degree views in low Earth orbit, 
it must have been quite a, an incredible experience. So the only reason we haven't heard more of what they're doing and what they were doing is because instead of uh, choosing to um, relay the sights and sound of the three-day extraordinarily important historic mission uh, live to the ground like a NASA mission does, um, they've stuck it behind a paywall over on Netflix. And the Netflix channel, when you go there, says that their next update on the mission will be September 30th, which, looking at my calendar, is uh, many, many days away. So uh, we're going to talk next week about putting these experiences behind paywalls, which is absolutely counterindicated in terms of our NASA experience over the last several decades. But is that part of the price that comes from having private enterprise in orbit and to pay for the missions to have at some level to, quote, make money. Now, in this case, the mission was not making money to make money. It was making money to donate to St. June's Hospital. And in fact, as of last night, I haven't checked the numbers today, uh, but as of last night, the mission had apparently raised almost 160 million dollars in donations and contributions and pledges uh, from the audience paying attention to the first all civilian mission into Earth orbit to safely return. That's not bad. I mean, I remember the old days of the Jerry Lewis telethon. And if I had been, you know, advising either Musk or Mr. Isaacman, I would have said, no, your business model is wrong. You should do a telethon like Jerry did from orbit, from that cupola with the earth in the background and live actualities like the conversations they had with some of the patients at St. Jude's. But, you know, who am I? So I don't have a billion dollars or two. So we will discuss this in more detail next week. But I think that this is not this is not the way to run a railroad. This is not the way to introduce most of humanity to civilians becoming the predominant occupiers of space. And I'm sure we will have a spirited discussion uh, with some of my friends more on, we should say, the right-hand side of the political spectrum. Be that as it may, item number two is kind of a segue to item number one, because a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, um, down in Florida, Boca Chico, uh, SpaceX lifted the Starship. Remember, that's the upper part of the spacecraft that Musk is building that's not only going to go into Earth orbit with lots of passengers, <clears throat> you know, civilians, but also in the next couple, three years, maybe three years, is destined to take the first civilian flight around the moon and return safely to the Earth. And so to do that, they need a very, very, very large rocket called the Super Heavy Booster. And that Super Heavy Booster was lifted onto its launch stand, complete with a Starship um, upper stage on top. And if you click on that article, the most interesting thing is the close-ups of the engines. Because what Musk has done to create this Super Heavy Booster is he has clustered his rocket engines like the Russians, like the Soviets did um, 30, 40 years ago, 
and theirs blew up repeatedly, the N1. It never made it safely off the launch pad uh, because of the problems in that day and age of synchronizing the exhaust and the resonance and the shock waves from all those multiple engines firing simultaneously. They were never able to successfully accomplish that mission, and so the Soviets had to cancel trips to the moon because their super heavy booster, even more, uh, shall we say, prodigious than the Saturn V, well, they could never get it to work because of the interactions between the various engines and the fact that they could not be synchronized. Well, now, in an area of electronics, of AI, of computer control, of much better engineering, uh, as we know from his launch of the heavy booster a couple, three years ago with the uh, red uh, Tesla Roadster, uh, Musk and his engineering team have been able to solve the synchronization problem. So when the Starship comes up for its first orbital flight, which is going to be sometime in the next few months, um, we can imagine that all those engines firing simultaneously will pave the way for another group of civilians to someday get on the Starship, leave from Boca Chico, or maybe the Cape, we're not sure which yet, and literally travel around the moon before returning to the Earth. That's where we're headed. And as this audience knows, there are surprises, astonishing surprises to be discovered by civilians, not military astronauts, but by civilians waiting on the moon for those close-up images and live chats through social media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what Wednesday triggered. That's what it kicked off. The first civilian crews to look at what's out there, particularly on the moon, and to be able, uncensored, to report on what they see. Moving on. As you know, we're having major problems with climate and weather and global warming. And one of the sad indicators is item number three. The world's largest tree, a sequoia in upper northern California called General Sherman, is in the path of another of California's raging forest fires. There's the, I've lost count. There's too many. There's tens of millions of acres tonight burning out of control because of a combination of factors that we've covered on this show many, many times. I just thought it was kind of a harbinger of things to come unless we change paths um, that they're trying by wrapping the base of the most amazing tree on the world, the largest, uh, which, by the way, at the base is broader than the Saturn V or uh, Musk's super heavy booster, I think at 38 feet in diameter. They're wrapping the base of it with an aluminized foil, which reflects the intense heat of, uh, uh, you know, the forest fire and uh, most vitally protects the base of the tree where the roots enter the soil. Um, Sequoias are known to be fire resistant. In fact, fire is one of the parts of the ecosystem that allows sequoias 
and redwoods to spread their seeds because like little miniature mortars or grenades, the heat pops the seeds and the trajectories take the, take the seed pods far away from the tree where they are buried by rainstorms and, you know, little animals and whatever, and they sprout into new redwoods or new sequoias. Well, the fires have changed because of the environmental conditions, particularly um, something called chemtrails, which has produced an overwhelming residue of aluminum oxide in the soil. So these forest fires are burning so much hotter with measurably much longer flame lengths, which you can see if you click on some of the links in that story. And so the Forest Service is trying to take kind of minimal precautions to see if it can help this sequoia survive. And as I said, as of a couple of days ago, it was in the path of one of these large raging forest fires. And as, as of tonight, uh, I do not know whether General Sherman has survived. With Google, you can find out. Item number four. Remember, I said that we tried to start out with some upbeat stuff. Item number four and five go together. Remember, I've been saying from the get-go that if COVID-19 is not the natural evolution from bat viruses to something could infect humans, but in fact was a designed uh, virus, a, a virus, let's say, for argument's sake, that escaped from the lab. And we now have a lot of documentation that the U.S. government did fund, uh, what do they call that, gain-of-function research out of the Wuhan lab for these families of coronaviruses. Uh, There's new paperwork, new leaked documents, which reveals that. Well, if someone on Earth, or in my model, someone off Earth, decided to weaponize COVID-19, the question then arises, why? Uh, There are several possible answers, some of which we may get to tonight, because they're all extraordinarily controversial. But I want to kind of put it on the record that what I've been saying all along is, you know, our focus on the eventualities of a pandemic, like the need for masks, the need to ultimately find a vaccine which works and which is safe, pale by consideration to what the virus unchecked is doing all by itself. Now, everybody focuses, as they rightly should, on the percentage of people who contract this disease, this virus, and die. And obviously, you want that number as low as possible. I've been saying from the beginning, um, I'm equally concerned with those who contract this this pandemic, contract this virus, COVID-19, and don't die. Because the numbers are now telling us that something upwards of 30% of people who contract COVID-19 come down with what they've termed euphemistically long COVID, symptoms that last for weeks and months. And sometimes, you know, we've now got, what, 18 months of data. There are people still suffering from the effects of COVID-19 who picked it up over a year ago. My question has been, what happens to those people, the long COVID people, and is in fact this the kind of ulterior reason for creating this virus in the first place, again in the model 
that it was created. And I think the evidence is accumulating and even mainstream observers are now coming to the conclusion that this was something that if it was not designed as a bioweapon, it was the next best thing because when it escaped, it has acted like a bioweapon. So if it was designed to do something besides kill people and its efficiency at killing people is far below, you know, things like Ebola, etc. If it was designed to infect a large number of people, what would have been the reason? Well, that's where story four and five come in because separate studies conducted on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean are indicating the same thing, that there have been something like um, 13,000 people out of a field of 80,000 that were measured who've had substantial decreases in their intelligence as gauged by standard IQ tests that these patients were given. Now, again, as with anything in science these days, for every study, there's a counterfactual study, or at least there are people who claim there's something else going on. So without kind of polluting the conversation, all I'll tell you is read those two items, read the source links, and then begin to do your own research. Because my approach to this has been getting this, even if you survive, is not something you want to do. You want to avoid getting COVID-19 possible. And if you get it, the application, as soon as you know, of monoclonal antibodies seems to do the trick and prevent you from dying. Does it prevent you from having long COVID? That's something we don't know. Nobody knows because this is so new. And our whole medical regime seems to be predicated on months and years of study where now we've only had a few months of exposure to a novel virus which has all kinds of novel symptoms up to and including if you look at these studies a substantial impact on cognitive function and the brain and again there are people who say there are other possible explanations for this um you got to do your homework and when i say do your homework don't just stick with social media Go to original sources, try to find papers, studies, try to find peer-reviewed papers or studies. This is the no single point failure model. That's what science is built on. It isn't one person's results. It's one person's results that then can be corroborated again and again and again by independent people, independent researchers, independent doctors, and independent teams that come up with the same answer. That's how we know what we know, at least in terms of the Western scientific modality. Is there any other way to fly? I don't think so. Moving on. If it weren't bad enough that we're surrounded by the pandemic, we're surrounded by global warming, we're surrounded by, you know, political uh, extremism of all kinds of inconceivable positions just a few years ago that are now being normalized, like celebrating a bunch of insurrectionists on the Capitol grounds yesterday, we have something else to worry about. A major volcano has erupted on La Palma, which is part of the uh, islands just off the uh, coast of, of uh, Africa and uh, Spain. 
And there had been major, major questions about this particular set of islands for many, many years because one of them has a very large overburden that experts have been, you know, uh, concerned a major earthquake and, of course, volcano eruptions are preceded and carried out during earthquakes could cause this huge mass of, of rock and earth to slide into the Atlantic Ocean, creating an enormous tsunami, which would then race unchecked 600 miles an hour uh, to the west and impinge all up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States to say nothing of islands in the Caribbean, Cuba, um, Haiti, Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, you name it, as well as some of the northern you know, countries in uh, South America. That huge tsunami could cause such devastation and literally millions of people perish in the space of a few hours. Again, as if we didn't have enough to worry about. So if you want to click on that link, number six, you can see some live video. And I think there's a webcam in that story, which will give you, you know, live information right now. Um, as you know, some of our people are on the West Coast and some are on the East Coast. It's the ones on the East Coast that are paying very careful attention to this story tonight because it's like, what else can happen? Uh, it's not a high probability. It's a low probability, but it's not zero. And we're living in a world where the margins are becoming very important. Tonight, we're going to be talking about 9-11 and the changes on the planet that have occurred in the last 20 years. And these changes, in part, have occurred because, I believe, of the inevitable after effects of this major geopolitical tragedy. And some of them may have occurred because of design. In other words, they were built into the fabric of whatever conspiracy created 9-11 and then has spent 20 years lying about what really occurred. Last night, you heard from uh, uh, one of our guests who has done a really good book on the uh, stories of the families, many of the families who have been searching for answers to 9-11 for 20 years. Tonight, I want to widen our focus. I want to, you know, kind of zoom back, you know, zoom out and look at the big, big picture. If, in fact, this was not a, you know, small group of terrorists who decided on a, uh, uh, you know, bright, sunny afternoon in the fall of, of uh, 2001 to pull off the most amazing terrorist uh, event of, of, you know, history, recent history, certainly. If it was part of a larger plan, how is that plan going? Where are we on that plan? What are the indicators we should look for? Have there been any contravening activities which are at this late stage contravening that plan? And if things go on the way they, in one model, were designed to go on, how do we get off the train? How do we change the conversation? How do we, um, well, how do we interrupt history, a history that we do not see being made and have it take a different course. 
So this evening we're going to talk about 20 years later, the geopolitical effects of 9-11 and where are we going? As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities and your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoyed my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we 
are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading toward, I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond, beyond the box. Sunday night, September 19th, 2021. We're considering tonight, and we've got a really good cast to consider this with, the impact of 9-11 20 years after, two decades of what was called up until a few days ago, the forever war. And then against the backdrop of a great deal of howling and squealing and you know, folks like stuck pigs saying, oh, no, you can't end it. Oh, oh. The current president of the United States officially called an end to the 20-year-long Afghanistan war, the beginning of the war on terror, with this incredibly strange side, you know, journey into Iraq. And so the forever war came to an end a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. Not quietly, as wars never end quietly, um, but it has ended. Now, there are a whole bunch of other wars going on around the, the, the world tonight that we're not privy to. Fortunately, we do not seem to be part of them, although one could argue that, that there are secret wars that we're involved in, which uh, we're, we're, we're not kind of aware of. <clears throat> and that, of course, is the responsibility of a free press, the media. Which, of course, has all also changed dramatically in the last 20 years. So without further ado, uh, let me uh, introduce our players tonight. Our faculty, our guests, uh, we, of course, have uh, uh, Barbara Honiger with us. Barbara was a former member, very interesting historical perspective. She was the <clears throat> only woman... In, involved in the Reagan administration at a senior policy level. And so she has uh, been on the show many different times, has talked about her experiences, has talked about uh, her, her being one of the boys. <clears throat> and uh, she's now been playing a pivotal role in the search for the truth about 9-11, uh, whose 20th anniversary, I hate that word because... You know, anniversaries should be joyful commemorations. This obviously was not. So she has been part of the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Truth, and she has uh, uh, been heavily involved in trying to get at the uh, truth about what happened 20 years ago. 
for, well, the last two decades. Our other participant this evening is, uh, is Dr. Richard Spence, who's a professor of history at the uh, University of Idaho. He says he's now retired, but it's one of those things where are you ever really retired? <clears throat> His interests include Russian and military history, including uh, espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. And you can go to the other side of midnight and click on both their bios and read a lot more. I don't want to take up any more time. So Barbara and Rick, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Well, thank you, Richard, and welcome back to the other side of midnight yourself. (laughs) (laughs) We have had some infrastructure problems here in New Mexico, which I believe are now going to be solved. There have been some important new developments, and I may have more to report to our audience uh, next week on that front. Um, Rick, I want to start with you because as an an historian, and I'm having electronic problems here, sorry, um, as an historian, uh, we're looking now at an aftermath in a limited sense of a 20-year war, which literally ended a few days ago. Has there been any other comparable period in American history and maybe in a broader context where a population has been involved in such a lengthy endeavor, and if so, what were the effects on that culture as compared to the obvious changes in our own culture? Well, you mean if war has gone on for more than 20 years? Yes. Yes, yes. That's not uncommon at all. If you go back far enough, not even that far, there was the Hundred Years' War, which actually was longer than 100 years and was on and off. That might be a good, you wouldn't think there would be, so what was the Hundred Years' War? The Hundred Years' War um, began in the 14th century, and it ended in the 15th century. And basically from the 1340s up to about the uh, 1480s, and it essentially involved what we would nowadays call England and France. And it went through a variety of phases, but one of the things it was essentially, what the war was about in the beginning was an effort by the English monarchs to make themselves the kings of France. That had to do because history, most, almost all of their ancestors were from France, and they had countries where uh, you didn't really have countries, let's say, in the, in, in the 14th century, as we think of the day. You had domains under the control of particular families and warrior aristocracies. So the English domains were anything that the English king was was lord over, that the nobility under him paid taxes and gave obedience. And there were large parts of what today we would think of as France that were under English political economic control. And um, the other part of that was that the English kings were otherwise confined to a rather foggy, unprofitable island. Um and France was, was a much bigger prize. I mean, they had wine. There's the difference. Okay, someone actually proposed that this war was fought over access to wine. Wine grapes didn't grow in England. Oh. They grew in France. Now, it's, it's not as simple as that, but it, but it gives you an idea as to why they would be so eager to well, control Well, wait, 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 wait. There's an interesting comparison yeah. then, because part of the forever war, which included Iraq, it was said, in fact, by U.S. government officials high up, I think Rumsfeld himself made a statement that the Iraq war, which is part of the Afghanistan war, the forever war, was in part 
to safeguard another economic mainstay of our economy, oil. So if England was conducting a hundred years war against France for an economic benefit, i.e. the wine, there's an interesting parallel. Well, again, that's, it wasn't just the wine. It was essentially vanity. It was the, let's say the, the corporate ego. ego. Yeah. Ego. It was the corporate ambitions of the, of the Plantagenets and, Another guy who really simply wanted to lord over a bigger country. And so this war went on and off. And the English, uh, even though a much smaller country with a smaller population and a much smaller economy. Now, here again is one of those things where you would assume that the rule is always that the country that has more people and has the bigger economy will militarily prevail. No, that is not a rule. And the Hundred Years' War is an example of that. The English pretty much beat up on the French continuously for much of that time. Um, the anybody who's familiar with Shakespeare and the play Henry V, you know, Kenneth Branagh, other actors have played him, Laurence Olivier, but Henry V is this English, it, it's one of Shakespeare's historical plays, and that's really the kind of peak of British success. This was in 1415, and Henry led a small English army in, which defeated a much larger French one, and, and really, he... he he almost succeeded in establishing the British monarchs as the overlords of France. He was going to he was going to put together a dynastic marriage that was going to join the two countries together. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, the French eventually recovered their moxie, and thanks to I don't know people like Joan of Arc, she shows that she's part of this as well. <laughs> oh, um, they, they, the war changes, and the British, within uh, another 40 years, are, are defeated and eventually driven out of France completely and forced to become nothing more than the lords of their foggy, grapeless little island. But then, of course, they went on to become the British Empire. So the war started as a dynastic struggle. It basically started as the struggle between rich families who were basically all cousins of each other in warm one form, fighting as to who was going to be top dog. They led when the war started back in the 1300s weren't specifically, you know, you couldn't even go around at that time and find somebody who was distinctly English or French in the way that we think of them today. Because people didn't tend to think of themselves as belonging. Nations didn't really exist. You, you know, you were a, you know, if you lived in Western Europe in this, in this period, what you were basically, the way that people would generally identify them, if you asked someone what they were, is they go, well, I'm a Christian. Right? That, that's, that's one thing that pretty much everybody in England and France, Scotland, those areas were. Remember, this, this is also pre-Reformation, so they're all pretty much Catholics. But that's the way that they would identify themselves, by their religious affiliation. And then, well, I live in such and such a village in such and such a, a province. I'm from Normandy or from Brittany or I'm from Shropshire or I'm from some other area. But the sense of being part of some sort of larger abstract nation basically didn't exist. And there were no formalized languages. I mean, there was there was nothing in the sense of what we would tend to think of today as standard English or standard French. There were just a lot of basically illiterate local dialects that were vaguely familiar to each other. But then one of the things that the war did, one of the reasons why this Hundred Years' War is an interesting reference point, beyond the obvious fact that the only name you could eventually come up with it was the Hundred Years' War. 
So the one thing I would suggest is that if the only thing you can say after a century or so is that this war lasted 100 years, you have no idea by that time what it was actually about. All you're doing is describing how long it lasted. So when we talk about something, be, you know, Afghanistan or the war on terror as being a, a forever war, we're also doing the same thing. We call it a forever war is to really say you have no other description as to what it's about other than it just seems to be lasting forever. But here's what, over that space actually of more than 100 years, what that struggle between these two different dynasties and the peoples they controlled did. And you can see this by the 1420s, by the time that Joan of Arc rolls along, because she's doing something different. What made Joan of Arc an interesting historical figure for a number of reasons was that she actually is one of the first sort of exponents of what we would call French identity and French nationalism. Hmm. So a hundred years into this war, it had become, it didn't start out this way, but it had become increasingly, at least among the French perceived, as a war against an aggressive foreign people. The English now became this kind of identifiable enemy. And it was an enemy that all Frenchmen loyal to the king, or all people living in France, again, we won't call them, had in common. And it began to, the, the struggle with the English arguably did much to create a coherent French identity. So, you know, the simplest way to put it is, what does being French mean? It means not being those guys, not being English. They are different. They come from this small, foggy, grapeless island. They have red hair and and this this is the, one of the things apparently that the, the French would notice about the English is lots of them had red hair, which was considered to be kind of weird and terrifying, and so that was a way of if if you look at sort of pictures and the way that English soldiers will be portrayed, they're oddly enough certainly portrayed with red hair and what appears to be bad teeth, but. Um, but in the same way, the English began to increasingly see the French as being this, this thing that were against them. And, and, as their, and as their fortunes declined in France, the French were more and more defined as something that was not English. So by the time you get to the end of this, the, the British are defeated. Uh, the French, after much struggle and turmoil and cost and expense and bloodshed, have succeeded. Nobody's going to live happily ever after. But they emerge out of this really through a, a kind of, you know, a sort of test by fire, it, one of the things this war did is it refined their very identity of who they were. It made them something collectively that they weren't to begin with. And, of course, we're not even talking about the same people because no one was alive at the end of the war who had been alive at the beginning. The people who were alive at the end of the, of the 1400s in the victorious France who defeated England were people who had no connection as to how this war had ever started. It was simply, again, it was a kind of forever war towards them. And then they had to find their well, way Well, back in those days, uh, you know, a, a normal lifespan was, what, 20, 30 years? Uh, well, that, that, that's kind of a misconception. We didn't think that people lived to 30 years and they died. There were people at any point in history then who lived to be 80 or 90. There just weren't very many of them. Right. Okay. That's so what, one of the things. So What I'm getting right. at is this extended over you know, generations defined as 20 years. Mm -hmm. 
This extended over five generations. Your great-great-great-grandfather would have served in the English or French army under those conditions. Yeah. To the relatively few people who who did. One of the other things you have to keep in mind is that, and this is similar in some ways to today, is that there only a very tiny part of either of those populations ever actually fought. That's well, that was my no. next question because yeah. one of the ways I think, <clears throat> as a non-historian, this 20-year war in Afghanistan following 9/11 kept going is that the draft was not part of it. All those no. people who served and died, 800,000 people served in, in Afghanistan, 20,000 wounded, uh, 2,500 give or take died. They were all a tiny minority of the U.S. population. So the war basically went on with almost nobody even remembering there was a war going right. on because it certainly wasn't on the CBS or NBC Evening News. It was, it was a 21st century equivalent of what they used to call a colonial war. Okay. And that's and since much of it was really in some ways about extending American geopolitical influence into Central Asia, it was a colonial war. And colonial wars were the things that back in the 1800s, or even in the early 20th century, that the British, the French, anybody else who had fought. You, know, you, you sent off what were probably a small number of long-term professional soldiers, and you would send them off to the far-flung corners of the empire, and you would subdue the dissident peoples who lived there and bring them into the imperial system. And some of those soldiers would be killed, and they would be replaced by others who were usually recruited from the poorest elements of your population because, you know, the army was one of the things that was available for them. But for the general population, it never affected them. Well, that's an incredible would, parallel. That's how the wars kept going. It didn't affect most people like the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war did not affect over two decades most Americans. Well, it affected the, the individuals who were there, and it affected the families of those people who either had to worry about them who were there or had to mourn them when they were killed or deal with them when they were wounded and incapacitated. But for the, great, for the, for the other 330 million people in the United States, it wasn't an everyday thing. It was something that somebody you knew's cousin was doing. Well, you know, and, one of the, sorry, one of the uh, subtitles of tonight's show is What Have We Learned? What I've learned is that unless you have a direct and immediate impact of the war on your population, these kinds of shenanigans can go on and on and on and make a select number of people multi-billionaires, you know, the arms people and all those subcontractors, and the rest of the culture doesn't even know. It's not even impacted. It doesn't even know what's going on. And everybody who fights and dies there is a volunteer. Technically. Well... They signed on for a job, right? So it's it's there, and there is there is a difference in this. There's a difference between a long-term professional army and an army composed of citizen soldiers or draftees. And you know, a, a draftee is someone who is either through patriotic devotion or through simply you know bad luck of the draw. They're 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 not entirely of their free will. So it's. 
you might be eager to go, you might consider it the best opportunity of your life, or you might hate it, but there is, a, there is an element of compulsion. On the other hand, when you offer big enlistment bonuses and uh, post-service educational guarantees, when you throw out the economic incentives to get people to enlist, and that's one of the things that much of the armed services have problems with is, is getting enlistees, that's why they offer that money, because it's necessary to bring people in to what is inherently dangerous work. So it's basically but, importing so, capitalism into the, into the business of war. Well, that's always been there. I mean, it, 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 one of the things that it does is that it turns, you know, this is going to be, <laughs> I don't mean this to sound, it, it may be controversial, but it's, it's basically true. You, we, we place a, a great emphasis on the reason why people fight or why they would join the American Armed Services is out of a sense of patriotic duty, which for a great many people is true. But on the other hand, you also make it economically quite attractive. And why do you do that? Because you have to. Because quite simply, if you didn't offer the economic incentives for people to enlist in the military, many or most of those who currently do would not. And one of the things that does is that intentionally or not, but it turns it into a kind of mercenary arrangement. So you need an economic underclass to perpetuate these forever wars. Otherwise, in a volunteer political system, nobody would sign up or very few would sign up. Well, you know, not a lot of not a lot of rich people generally go out and volunteer for the army. If it's a tradition in their family to become to go as an officer, they might well do that as a family tradition. That also carries with it social prestige and the greater chance of monetary reward from that as well. But one of the things that really helps, I'm just not talking about the U.S., but it happens anywhere at any time, is that uh, the main place you're going to recruit soldiers from are, are from the poor because you're going to offer them a better economic opportunity. It was the same in Rome. Right. So wealthy Romans from patrician families, guys like Julius Caesar, became the leaders of army. They might devote themselves to leading the armies of Rome. But of course, they never served as a foot soldier. But the legionnaires who marched behind Caesar, the legionnaires who helped Caesar to control, you know, earn his reputation and eventually almost make him the king of Rome, whose loyalty was to him ultimately and not Rome because he handed out a lot of money to them. They were there because that was the best economic opportunity they could find. I mean, the Roman army, even in its imperial heyday, even had a kind of retirement plan. If you, uh, if you stay in for 20 or 25 years, you know, and, and you live, and you've still got all of your limbs by the time that you're finished with it, they'll actually give you a plot of land. You can settle on the frontiers of the empire, and you can become a farmer. You can continue to be a kind of useful contribution to this. And, and that there wasn't any other kind of job at that time you know, that ever had a kind of retirement plan. You had to stay alive, which was kind of tricky, but that would be, would be necessary. So during the Hundred uh, Years' War on both sides, Loosely England, loosely France. Were the peasants conscripted to serve in the armies, or was it a volunteer reward system like it is supposedly today? Well, most of the common soldiers would probably have been from peasant origin because, well, pretty much if you weren't from the nobility or the small middle class, the 
the merchants, the artisans, then you were a peasant. Okay, remember, society at that time, at least eight out of every ten people living in those countries were farmers, uh, and, and, and generally relatively poor farmers as well. And you know, anybody who's – even today, farming is – um, you know, it can be economically rewarding, but it, but it's it's hard. It's risky. You know, the rains don't come, or the rain too much rain comes. Uh, it's it's it, it's something that people would often you know you might argue with any kind of gumption or initiative would be looking for for a way to get out of. So if you look at medieval armies, which is basically what you're talking about, you're looking at armies that would be led by aristocrats. They're always led by the nobility. The, the nobility were a, a warrior administrative caste. That's, that's what nobles did. Nobles basically knew how to fight. That was their whole purpose. And when the king called on them, the whole point within a feudal system or a system of patronage is that when the king called upon his nobles to show up to fight for him, wherever he wanted to fight, for whatever reason, they would ideally do so, and they'd bring along a number of fighting men with them. And those would be commoners. And, you know, but it, it's an interesting kind of question if you look at, a, at some kind of social profile of, of common soldiers, which we don't know much about in that period. You'd find people who were probably of peasant origin. Um, you'd often <laughs> – the term if, if that was – well, let, let's take something up. Let's go up a few centuries to a different period, but same situation. If you go up to the, the armies of the Napoleonic Wars – and even if you go into the British Army in the 19th century, again, you had aristocratic officers, you had common soldiers who either came from the countryside or they came from from urban slums. This was the best kind of job they'd ever had, but it was someone, I'm sure it was Wellington or someone asked, you know, what made your soul great? You know, where, where do your soldiers come from? And he goes, well, they're basically the scum of the earth. Mm. There's, there's, his view was that these, these weren't necessarily particularly good or noble individuals. <clears throat> Uh, you know, the question is how many of them in the, otherwise would have been thieves or cutthroats? <laughs> it's, it was you, – you basically served out of the, the money which you had. I mean you, you got a number of things. You, if, if your officers took care of you, what did you get? You got clothes. You probably got a new pair of boots every so often. And most importantly, you were fret, fed at least twice a day. I'll tell you what, we're, 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 we're at the so top of the hour. Yeah. We're at the top of the hour. Let's hold it there. My guests this morning for the first couple hours are Dr. Richard Spence, who is an historian, uh, retired, supposedly, at the University of Idaho, and uh, Barbara Honiger, who served in a high-level policy position in the Reagan White House and has been a dedicated uh, – I'm trying to think of the appropriate term – dedicated volunteer to get to the bottom and the truth of 9-11. And when we come back, we're going to ask Barbara the same question. What effects on our culture of 9-11 has she seen in the last 20 years? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, 19th of September, 2021. We're looking back 20 years, and we're going to look back a little further shortly, at what the last 20 years of the Forever Wars launch because of the events of 9-11 have done to our society. I mean, I would make, and I'm going to make the argument later on in the morning, that we have had extraordinary deleterious effects from the events of 9-11 and the only question in my mind is were these planned as part they received from the beginning or are they the inevitable effects of a war which masticizes which expands whose origins and reasons even within a generation became kind of lost to history. So without further ado, uh, let me let me turn to you, Barbara. What do you think has been the primary effect of the forever wars that began with 9-11? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd, I'd rather uh, answer the question, if I could, which is, uh, uh, I think, more to the point, and that is, what are the, what is, what are the effects, the critical effects? of 9-11 itself, uh, because the forever wars is an effect of 9-11 itself. Um, So I'm going to give you a broad stroke here. But before I do, I wanted to mention a a nice synchronicity, because um, uh, Richard Spence and you were talking about uh, the critical fact that these forever wars um, are facilitated by the fact that we no longer have a draft in the United States, uh, as of the Nixon administration, by the way. And um, when you don't have a draft, uh, you you don't affect the broad uh, spectrum of the American population. And so, as as you said, you know, 320 million people uh, might not be, they didn't think the beginning directly affected by the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Of course, they were affected uh, more and more over time um, to the to the extent that the American people simply wanted to leave, and we have just left. Um, but the synchronicity is that 
my mentor, uh, with whom I worked at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University for six years, and then uh, was whisked off by his coattails, uh, even though I was independently meritoriously qualified. Um, but I wouldn't have been in the West Wing of the White House right over the Oval Office if it hadn't have been for the man that almost single-handedly ended the peacetime draft in the Nixon administration. And he was my mentor. I worked with him for many, many years, almost a decade, including for two and a half years in the Reagan administration in the White House. And his name is Dr. Martin Anderson. He's no longer alive. We called him Marty. He was the chief domestic policy advisor, the first one in the first Reagan administration in the White House with me. And he showed me a letter that he was given, signed by President Nixon um, back in, I believe, the, that would be the 70s, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> in in time flies. Um, but, uh, but it basically, um, it was about a three-line letter that he had framed in his office at the Hoover Institution, signed by President Nixon, thanking him for ending the peacetime draft, which was Marty Anderson's, uh, one of Marty Anderson's main lifetime goals. And uh, he, is, he is known for, for that. Um, so anyway, I thought that that was, was quite interesting, that I worked personally for many, many years or the man who may be as responsible as anyone else, Dr. Martin Anderson, um, for enabling these forever wars to continue as long as they did. Okay, so um, I, I want to, to give an overview here. Uh, the title of our, of our show tonight is 9-11, 20 years after, what have we learned? Now, I don't know what part one was, so I'm just going to assume this is it. Um, 20 years after, what have we learned? If by that, there, you're, there are two ways to interpret that question. If you interpret it as what have we learned about what really happened on 9-11 and who was really responsible and what were they trying to achieve, yes, we know a tremendous amount, and hopefully I'll be able to give you a good overview of that in a little bit. But if by that you mean what have we learned in an ethical or a moral sense, or are we any better off than we were? You know, are you any better off than you were four years ago? Are you any better off than you were 20 years ago? Absolutely not. We are far worse off. Well, I meant it in, in both contexts because <laughs> the lie that got us into 9-11 has radiated out across these two decades and has impinged on people all over the planet in a very, in my perspective, very negative point of view including yes. the citizenry of the United States. So the two, to me, in my mind, when I crafted the title, are inextricably linked. And that's why yes, I was asking course. Rick yes. about precedence, because I don't think, in terms of this recent escapade, that we can see past analogs in exactly the same way. Cultures evolved in a better form. Ours appears to have devolved in an incredibly negative tendency right well let me just touch on some of the major major points and that is and we can go back we can go back later and talk about why we know that the official story the official narrative 9-11 is a huge hitlerian big lie um, i'm going to leave that for a moment for a little bit later but 
if it hadn't have been for the big lie of who attacked America on 9-11, we wouldn't have had the pretext to go into Afghanistan. If we hadn't been in Afghanistan, the Taliban would have been in power in a couple of days or a week or something like that. Uh, but they're in power anyway. So what was the point? Uh, 20 years later, effectively nothing has changed except that 800,000 Americans served there with many, many injuries. What, 25, 26, 20, 20-some thousand, yeah. yeah. Uh, 800,000 served, about uh, 2,600 deaths, as I recall, and just tremendous, tremendous devastation to their society. Um, so if, we, if, if they hadn't lied about who attacked us on 9-11, who actually did the deed, there wouldn't have been the pretext to be in Afghanistan, and none of that would have happened. And then if the Bush-Cheney administration hadn't pivoted as they said, into Iraq. And they hadn't lied about who attacked us with anthrax at the beginning, uh, to the point that after a little while, before we actually went into Iraq, some 70% of the American public believed the lie that Saddam Hussein was behind the anthrax attacks in 9-11 still. There wouldn't have been the, uh, the public support going into Iraq. And if we hadn't gone into Iraq and devastated that society and removed an autocrat who is a Sunni, uh, a Sunni uh, Muslim, then the, the vast majority of the population of Iraq is Shiite. And next door was the Shiite theocracy, Iran. So if we hadn't gone into Iraq and removed the uh, the artificial autocratic power of the of the Shiite regime of Saddam Hussein, who was basically our man, who had been a CIA asset for years since the 1950s. Oh, we have video of of uh, Rumsfeld shaking Correct. hands and turning over a whole bunch of chemical weapons to Hussein just a few years before, and biological weapons, including anthrax. Okay, mm. so. So if we hadn't been in Iraq and overturned this Shiite autocrat, then anybody, any kindergartner should have been able to figure out that if you have, if you have an autocrat who is a, a religious minority in a country that is overwhelmingly Shiite, that country is going to go Shiite. And that's going to be the only real beneficiary of that was of all things Iran. And still is. Hmm. So the, there, there's no question that from the point of view of the people who really were behind the 9-11 attacks, and we can get into that, um, they were the, the neocons, the Project for New American Century Manifesto neocons, um, led by people like Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl. Uh, and uh, also Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, but Really, the uh, the archetypal uh, the neocon in this uh, for for the the real plot of 9/11 was Paul Wolfowitz, and Paul Wolfowitz um, and um, Rumsfeld and Cheney um, uh, told um, told um, uh, an, an American general 
uh, right after 9-11 that the, the reason for uh, what they were going to use 9-11 for uh, was to overthrow the regimes in seven Middle Eastern countries, ending with the last domino, which is Iran. So the bottom line is that was the plan. It has not been carried out. It has not succeeded. Um, Russia under Putin came in and interfered with the domino just before Iran of the seven nations that the nine, that the real 9/11 goal was to uh, affect, and that was Syria. Um, we were we were stopped in Syria, and we have been stopped in Iran. So uh, the seven countries have not fallen, but a large number of them did. Um, so also, if we hadn't gone into especially uh, Iraq and later Syria, there wouldn't have been a large number of Muslim refugees that flowed into Europe. And if there hadn't been this flow of Muslim refugees into Europe, the right wing in Europe would not have been energized as it has been over these uh, past 20 years. And the right wing in the United States, Mm. especially under Donald Trump, would not have been energized because 9-11, the purpose of 9-11, fall of the Soviet Union, the military, industrial, intelligence, congressional media complex. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, and you can add, you can add academe complex, you know, mm-hmm. complex. That they needed a new enemy. And 9-11 was designed to give them that apparent new enemy, which is so-called radical Islam. And if 9-11 hadn't been orchestrated by the real insiders, to create this new global enemy, uh, then Donald Trump, I do not believe, would have succeeded in his xenophobic uh, campaign in 2016, in which he basically, uh, it was basically against, you know, them, that it's us versus them, and in particular, all of those Hispanic Mexicans and uh, are going to flow into our country, but in particular, you've got to protect America from Muslims. So all of this happened because of the lie of who attacked America on 9-11. And I don't know if you want to get into that now, some of the critical uh, evidence that we now know that the official story of 9-11 is false. Yeah, I want to, I want to stay with the impact, and then we can go back to the – because we've documented on how many shows we've all done together, you know, the 9-11 lies and the – actual evidence which shows that it was an inside job and you know all it's almost like old hat and more and more people are waking up to the idea that it was a manufactured job i'm very little attention has been paid to the effects the catastrophic societal effects and i would include in that this incredible distrust of authority figures from science from government from think tanks, from any, any institutions that have basically said the world is this way, you now have a huge contingent, like 30% of the American population that basically says they're all lying and doesn't believe anything. And I think that incredible distrust of institutions that were formerly, you know, revered or at least, you know, listened to 
comes directly from the lies that were spread around 9-11. Well, also, uh, 9-11 was used, of course, immediately as a pretext for the national security um, state in the United States. And most people don't know, and this is, uh, by the way, in my my items, in Barbara's items, uh, when people can go either during the show or after the show. Um, there is uh, my documentary on YouTube, which now has about 250,000 views, I'd like to, I'm pleased to say. Um, uh, it's called Behind the Smoke Curtain, What Happened at the Pentagon and Didn't on 9-11 and Why It Mattered. That's item num- I- that is item number four in your section of Radio with Pictures. Right. So what you learn towards the very beginning of Behind the Smoke Curtain, this documentary on YouTube, what you learn close to the beginning is that uh, one of the immediate effects of 9-11, and I personally believe, and it's a very informed opinion, uh, but it is my informed opinion, um, one of the immediate effects, and I believe it was the intent of the real inside perpetrators, um, was to um, to use the uh, the alleged failure of the NORAD response on 9-11. After all, uh, none of the planes were, according to the official story, scrambled uh, by by NORAD fighter jets in time uh, for the first time ever. They're supposed to scramble within eight minutes of of any uh, plane going off course, even two miles. And uh, over an hour and 45 minutes, none of the planes uh, were scrambled to. So, um, one of the immediate effects was to use the alleged failures of NORAD, which were, in my informed opinion, uh, <laughs> orchestrated and intended. Well, was it, was, was it there? Let, well, let me, finish well, let me ask this question because it's important. Let me finish my point, please. I'm almost there. Uh, it, was, it was used as a pretext for creating what is called NORTHCOM, the Northern Command. Um, before 9-11, there was no Northern Command, which included the mainland United States as a combatant command by our U.S. military. Our U.S. military in the Pentagon divides the world into regions, command regions. And um, there was none that included the mainland United States as a combatant command for war there. 9-11, with the pretext of the failure of NORAD on 9-11, not to scramble for those four planes, NORTHCOM was created. Most people don't realize that NORAD, which did the alleged failure on 9-11, that NORAD is a joint command of Canada and the United States. And before anything is supposed to happen under NORAD, both the the Canadian commander and his American counterpart, on 9-11 that was General Ralph Aberhart, head of NORAD, they're supposed to agree. But with the 9-11 so-called failure by NORAD, NORTHCOM was created, and guess what? The head of NOR- the U.S. commander of NORAD was given a new second double hat as head of NORTHCOM, whereby General Aberhart was then able to, and anyone who became then head of NORTHCOM, who also still to this day has the double hat of the commander, the U.S. commander of NORAD, with his hat on as the commander of NORTHCOM. He is able to unilaterally, unilaterally respond to uh, to some kind of a provocation without getting the 
agreement of the Canadian commander of mm. Nora. Now, that's extremely important. And the other really important, in my very educated opinion, the other planned uh, so-called effect of 9-11 was that the, of of the alleged intelligence failures of 9-11 was the creation of the surveillance police state in the United States with all of the fusion centers um, unifying the police and the sheriffs and the FBI and the new Department of Homeland Security. Where did we hear about Homeland before? That was mm. Nazi Germany. Okay. So we have been literally Nazified. Our police departments have been militarized. The American civilian population is surveilled in everything that they do. And this is a horrendous consequence of 9-11 and the lies who attacked our country. And your argument would be this is accidental or planned and deliberate? Absolutely planned. What I wanted to interject there, and the reason I thought it was important, is because the day of 9-11, September 11th, you know, uh, 2001, there was a NORAD um, war game going on. There were more than one, many of them. Well, weren't they all under one umbrella? No, they were not. Okay. There were a lot of NORAD exercises, but they weren't just one exercise. Um, what was important about those NORAD exercises, there were, there were two kinds of exercises. There were so-called war game exercises, and I'll clarify that in a minute. And then there were, counter, there were NORAD counterterrorism exercises. The counterterrorism exercises on 9-11 were run out of the NORAD Northeast Sector, out of Rome, New York, an Air Force base. And it was, it was the exercises out of Rome, New York, NORAD Northeast Sector on 9-11, that the scenarios were almost identical, if not identical, to the actual attacks, according to the official story. And they actually began that exercise on the morning of 9-11, and the fact that the exercise was going on 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 a parallel scenario with what actually happened was then used as the pretext for why NORAD didn't scramble the jets in time. Hmm. The entire thing was orchestrated. And not only that, the war games were separate from the counterterrorism exercises. On the morning of 9-11, many people do not know this. It's in my documentary, Behind the Smoke Curtain, on YouTube. Number four in Barbara's Items. Click on it and watch it. Okay. The other thing that was happening with NORAD on 9-11 that's even more important is that that morning, Russia was having a nuclear bomber exercise. Oh, my God. (laughs) In which their nuclear bombers would leave Russia and start towards Canada. Now, ever since the Cuban Missile Crisis, there have been what they call red-hot telephones between the two uh, countries' military commands. And... The agreement has always been so that there would not be a, an accidental war, that if there was an exercise that was being planned, that one side would tell the other in advance. Well, you remember, you remember that great scene in Dr. Strangelove where the U.S. president is talking to the uh, Russian premier and he says, but Dmitry, I didn't mean to send these bombers. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And um, I believe in Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove is uh, takeoff on Henry Kissinger, if I'm not Oh, yes, incorrect. yes, yes. 
And and who was who was originally appointed by President George Bush uh, to be the head of the 9/11 Commission, which they didn't want to begin with and delayed and delayed for over two and a half years, and that was Henry Kissinger. All right. Mm. So let me just go back to the day of 9/11 and what was happening with the Russia war game, because the Russians had these these uh, nuclear bombers with actual nuclear weapons on them. We've been told that, and they were leaving Russia, and they were going to come, you know, towards over the over the pole, and they were going to come towards uh, towards Canada, and because we were pre-alerted, at, with the red telephone, the hotline, and Richard Clark, who was the counterterrorism advisor in the White House for George Bush, he was alerted by our military command that this was happening, and as a result of that. The Nora, the annual annual war games by NORAD that are that were normally held in October were moved up to be on the same day to counter to have to have the pretext for our uh, bombers to be up to scramble to try to prevent their nuclear bombers from actually coming over Canada to the United States if they decided, if Russia decided to make their so-called exercise go live. For the first time ever since the Cuban Missile Crisis on 9-11, the five-foot-thick steel doors at Cheyenne Mountain, where a nuclear war would be waged from, were locked. Hmm. 9-11 was an extremely dangerous moment. Well, you could say yes. I'm, in fact, I'm kind of surprised after all that that we're still here. Because when yes. you throw when you throw a real dynamic situation into the mix, i.e., the planes hitting the, you know, the World Trade Towers and whatever happened in Washington, it probably was not an airplane. Then all hell could have broken loose, totally out of anybody's control. Totally. Well, and then you well, have the president well, running around the country in Air Force One unable to get back to Washington to to do anything to mediate the situation if he wanted to. Right. He was he was he was also cut off from his communications aboard Air Force One according to the official story. Now let me just add the last the last uh punchline of this NORAD story uh with the Russian war game. And it is because of the attacks on the Twin Towers that Richard Clark the counterterrorism advisor in the White House, who had been alerted to the Russian war game in advance by a number of weeks. It takes a long time to plan these war games and counterterrorism exercises by these militaries of different countries. Um, the White House was alerted um, that, uh, that this war game was going to happen by the Russians with their nuclear bombers on September 11th. Okay, and so when the Twin Towers were struck, Richard Clark picked up the red telephone and called his uh, called his counterpart in Russia and said, we want you to call off your exercise. We are under attack. Mm. And the Russians did turn their bombers around. Wow. Wow. Yes. And this is, you can read about this in Richard Clark's book, Against All Enemies. And I've never seen that anywhere published any time except tonight, right now. Well, it's in my Behind the Smoke Curtain, which has been out for years. 
Now, why isn't it part of the official record? Because we could. It is part of the official record. Well, but no one talks about it. No one, you know. We well, we're talking about it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Come on. Yeah. No. It, it is not um, part of general discussion of all the things that happened on 9/11. Well, I know about it because it's in the public record, and you should read Richard Clark's book called about 9/11 called Against All Enemies. Well, that's kind of relevant in another way to what I want to get into later in the morning, which is this current incredibly interesting, you know, contratemp over General Milley and talking to the Chinese. And anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. My two guests this morning for the next hour are Dr. Richard Spence, historian, uh, retired, you know, really, at the University of Idaho, and Barbara Honiger, senior policy advisor to President Ronald Reagan, who has some amazing and important information on 9-11, on the other side of midnight in Radio with Pictures. Pay attention to both. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 Point Archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out.
welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, September 19th, 2021. We're discussing the aftermath, the effects of this extraordinary event in modern American history, now a generation ago, 9-11. I would argue that A, it was planned, and B, it was planned to have all the deleterious effects ultimately that we have seen, which I think go even beyond Barbara's perspective on some of the intentions. But let's take the opposite side. Let's assume for a moment that the on-the-record story of 9-11, foreign terrorists, bin Laden, Islamic, you know, uh, whatever, it's all true. Let's assume for a moment that's all true. The last 20 years have been disastrous even because of it being true in the model that it was true. And that comes to major policy decisions, which in any scenario were absolutely wrong for the times and wrong for the future. Barbara, what do you think? Well, yes, of course, I agree with you, but I can't agree. I can't agree with the uh, presumption that uh, the official story is true, of course. I would like to let you know. Well, the the reason I put that out there is we have a lot of members of our our audience and, of course, of the general society who think that we're nuts in claiming that 9-11 was an inside job. What I want to put on the record is even if you buy the official story, what we did, the policy decisions – and the wars we began and the enemies we made and the follow-up we, we crafted were all wrong. There were no positive decisions regardless of why it happened, and they become ten times worse if you stand back and you think of it as part of a larger plan to, in my opinion, sabotage and ultimately destroy the United of America as we used to know it. Well, I think the United States has done a good job of destroying the United States. To the That's extent that, but but it's, it's from the conspirators. In that model, it's because it was part of a plan to destroy and move the country in such a fascistic direction that it, you know, literally a few hours ago, there was a celebration on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol of a group of people trying to overthrow the democratically elected government of the United States under a lie that the government elected is not the government elected. In other words, this concatenation of effects, yeah. Yeah, I well, do not only see. people showed up or so. <laughs> yeah, but that's irrelevant. It's the yeah. intent. It's right. the intent, and I would argue that it's part of an even larger set of historical events that were masterminded to put us on this path to change this country from what it once acclaimed and aspired to be to what it is tonight, which well, is very let confusing. Me, let me agree with you, um, especially uh, bringing it up to the present with the so-called pandemic. Uh, and the link, uh, just a few days ago, on September 11th, our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I'm on the board, a researcher, an officer, et cetera, as you know, uh, we held a global live stream event on September 11th with an amazing uh, cast of speakers for eight hours. And uh, what we what we did, uh, the Lawyers Committee, on September 11th, I'm going to make my link here in a moment. Um, on September 11th, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry 
filed a petition calling for a special criminal grand jury. We filed it with the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia with a copy and a cover letter to the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, calling for a special grand jury to reopen the investigation of the anthrax attack. Now, just to remind you, the anthrax, especially in the two letters shortly after 9-11 that are directly linked to 9-11 because the letters had 9-11 on them and wanted anybody who opened the letters uh, to get inhalation anthrax and to and to read the content of the letter, which uh, wanted you to believe that they were sent by Islamic radicals. And the letter was dated September 11, 2001. The anthrax and especially the letters to Senators Leahy and Daschle were the most highly weaponized anthrax at 1 trillion spores per gram. They were created in a military laboratory, an intelligence military laboratory, not necessarily in the United States. It could have been one of three foreign countries, probably uh, England, France, or maybe Canada, and Israel. Um, We haven't ruled them out. But what we have been able to prove in our filing that we filed with the U.S. Attorney for D.C. on September 11th, and it is, a, it is available to be read in all of its incredible, explosive, uh, proven, dispositively proven forensic facts, that the Patsy, the Lee Harvey Oswald of the anthrax letter attack in the wake of 9-11, the so-called second wave of the 9-11 attack, that that anthrax was highly weaponized. And that that anthrax was not put in the letters or created by the Lee Harvey Oswald patsy that the government tried to pin it on, Bruce Ivins of Fort Dietrich. Anthrax letter attackers are still at large. They still have bioweapons. That anthrax was a was an incredibly lethal bioweapon. And the very fact that it existed at one trillion spores per gram and closed down the entire Park Senate office building and then the other uh, congressional office buildings and eventually the Supreme Court building, it basically closed down the United States government buildings uh, immediately after those, uh, those anthrax attacks to the two members of Congress, um, that, that the very fact of the weaponization level of that anthrax proves that the that military intelligence labs in the United States, whether it was Fort Dietrich or another lab, and we named Battelle Memorial Institute and the Army Subway Proving Ground um, as the uh, almost certainly more likely sources of the anthrax in the letter, the weaponized anthrax, we know because of the level of lethality of that anthrax that the United States government was violating the bioweapons treaty. And um, that bioweapons treaty uh, under President Nixon again, um, that bioweapons treaty made it illegal um, for the United States and any signatory to the bioweapons treaty, biowarfare treaty, uh, to do any research on offensive uh, bioweapons. But we continued to do offensive bioweapon research secretly in the United States and our allies. Uh, under the uh, pretext that we were doing it for defensive purposes, that we would have to create these gain-of-function, created lethal pathogens like 
the coronavirus, like the anthrax and the anthrax letters, in order to then have that lethal pathogen to then test our vaccines against it. And that's how we justify doing the research to create the, the lethal pathogens in the first place. And there is very, very strong evidence that the uh, coronavirus was gain-of-function engineered, whether it was originally gain-of-function engineered in Wuhan, it was definitely gain-of-function engineered. So it wasn't that lethal, but, um, and it wasn't that contagious, but the, uh, the uh, Delta variant uh, is more contagious. So, and the United States government right now, and this was part of my presentation uh, in the Lawyers Committee event on September 11th, and by the way, the link to that, both the separate link to my standalone presentation on video, uh, and also the link to all eight hours of our Lawyers Committee global live stream event on September 11th, those are in my items, so you can click on those and see it. So in my presentation, I revealed the absolutely shocking fact that the, that the United States government is right now and has been for some time at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, we know at least, and probably in other secret laboratories in the United States and elsewhere, are doing gain-of-function research merging anthrax and the coronavirus in the laboratory. Good grief. I'm serious. I'm serious. At the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Now, the, the only reason to do that is that you would take the, the, the lethality of inhalation anthrax and you would take the um, contagiousness of the further morphed, you know, the further variant. Uh, and that's the further... an aerosol respiratory infection. Exactly. And you would create the perfect bioweapon by integrating the coronavirus. Do you remember a few months after the beginning of this nightmare? Uh, the nightmare officially began in December uh, of 2019, i.e., you know, um, China, et cetera, Wuhan, all that. A few months later, there was a mysterious murder of a researcher out of the University of Pittsburgh, and, yes. his, and his whole team <clears throat> promised to continue his research. That, to me, looked like a hit. It never looked like it was a suicide. It never looked like it was a you know, one of these marital nightmares gone wrong. It looked like a hit. The question is why, by eliminating this researcher, who who hoped to gain what? Right. Well, it's possible that researcher was working on the merging of the coronavirus and anthrax. I don't know. Um, but what we do know is that this research is going on, and you can read all about it. Uh, I give the link to uh, Whitney Webb was one of the – she's a fantastic – a journalist, investigative journalist. She was one of the speakers at our event, uh, Lawyers Committee event on 9-11, our global live stream. And she has published an article called um, called Corona Thrax. And it is about this research that is going on at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is funded by the U.S. government, by the way. So why in the current political environment, why is this allowed to continue? Well, uh, you're asking for an informed opinion. Yes. And it is my opinion that the United States for many, 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 many years, um, ever since the Nixon administration, when the Biowarfare Convention was passed, 
and it's been ratified by the U.S. Uh, Congress, by the way. Uh, and by the way, the man who, uh, the attorney, the international, renowned international law attorney, Francis Boyle, who wrote the, uh, the United States law that codified the Bioweapons Convention and was passed unanimously by both houses of Congress during the Nixon administration in 1969, I believe it was. He's one of the speakers at our event. So you can hear him himself if you uh, click on uh, the link to the Lawyers Committee's uh, September 11th live stream event, which is in my items, Barbara's items, uh, yeah. to, on tonight's show page. Yeah, I think it's item number six. Right. But from 9-11 right. anthrax to the pandemic, life and liberty in the balance. That is correct. So to answer your question, this is my informed opinion. Ever since, uh, ever since the end of the Cold War, um, the, see, during the Cold War, the United States and Russia had an extremely advanced biowarfare program. We were doing offensive biological uh, warfare research. And with the, uh, with the Biowarfare Convention that was uh, the, the U.S. codifying law, of which was written by Francis Boyle, Professor Francis Boyle, Attorney Francis Boyle, um, one of the speakers in our event on September 11. Um, ever since then, the United States has violated the Biowarfare Convention, and we've been doing offensive uh, biological uh, warfare research. Uh, and under the I cover of the United this, States, I believe the United States has been preparing uh, to wage and/or defend a bio war for decades, and that that has never changed, and that it is it is ongoing right now, and that you can think about. Uh, everything that's happening in the United States and around the world with all the masks, with all the vaccines, and now with even rationing of health care. And I think it's Idaho or Iowa. It's Idaho. Idaho. It's Idaho. All of this is sensitizing and preparing the population to be prepared to do the same thing in case of a bio war. Wow. Richard. Thoughts? On what? On all of this. <laughs> we've, covered, we've covered a lot. On, on all of this? Yeah. Well, let me bring back something to bring it back. It's, it's maybe to some basic questions. And the, and the question is, going back to what's changed since since 9-11. And let's go back to the whole, remember, the, the official pretext, everything else aside, what was the official pretext for the war? Uh, the United States was attacked by a terrorist conspiracy, and therefore we had to wage a war against terror. So that isn't over. So the only thing that's really changed in the last few weeks is that the last of American and American-backed Western forces withdrew from Afghanistan. That aspect of the war on terror, which was never really a war on terror and, and Afghanistan because the, the Taliban, what are, no, whatever sort of black marks you can have against the Taliban, and there are quite a few, they're not, they have nothing really involved in, in, in 9-11. They were simply, had given hospitality, hospitality to the bin Laden and other parts of Al-Qaeda who were alleged to have been the masterminds for this. But let's put it this way. Um, the old political question, are you better off now than you were before? So in what ways is the United States a more prosperous, a happier, a more stable, and a safer country 
than it was since then? And the answer to all of those is that it's not. Terrorism, however, that is if you talk about um, the existence of armed militant groups who utilize what we term terrorism, asymmetric attacks, and their methods are still very much around. ISIS is still very much around. Al-Qaeda is still very much around. Obviously, the Taliban, whatever their involvement in this, is still very much around. None of that has changed. Therefore, there's absolutely no reason to believe that an action as great or greater than 9-11 couldn't happen tomorrow. Because you have no idea what some people are planning somewhere, whoever they may or whoever they may be. So the whole thing can, can it completely happen again. Nothing is safer. And certainly, nothing is more prosperous and nothing is happier. It's uh, in that respect, the, the forever war is, is still going on. I might also mention that there are still American military forces deployed in Iraq. There are American military forces deployed in Syria. There are American military forces deployed in other countries in, in Central Asia and in, in the Persian Gulf. Um, a, a war with Iran is almost a daily possibility. And one and things could step out. You could wake up tomorrow morning, and that could be another front in this endless war. And there's still fighting going on. There are uh, regular rocket attacks on military, U.S. military installations in Syria. Uh, convoys supplying those bases out of Iraq come under a regular regular attack. That is. American military operations are still under attack in Iraq, which is supposedly stabilized, but it's not. So absolutely nothing. That is the net gain for the trillions of dollars that have been expended and the lives sacrificed. And remember, we're not even talking about the thousands, tens of thousands of people killed abroad in those countries because you know, they're not American, so we won't worry about mm. them. But there's absolutely no gain for this at all. And the essential point would be is that if the point for this anti-terror, this war on terror was to make America safe from terror, it has utterly failed. Correct. So what is the political effect of that reality? Because I don't see anybody uh, with Biden's you know, removal of us from Afghanistan arguing that we should stay there. I mean, the overwhelming poll numbers are like 70, 80%, you know, we should leave. They're now quibbling about how we left. Like you can, you can leave in an orderly way of a 20 year war that you've lost when a lot of complications there. And it probably came down the only way that it could, particularly when the government of Afghan, uh, Afghanistan that we put so much money into, you know, collapsed in 11 days. Nobody we're told predicted that, although I've heard some voices from the intelligence community that they did in fact predict that and nobody listened to them. Where's the truth well, there? Well, you know, they always, I mean, by they, this is the story always get. Well, you know, we, we, we didn't know these things were coming, but, but somehow we actually did. We just weren't able to communicate. This, I think, is basically what they're talking about. Intelligence ga is gathered from a variety of means, signals intelligence, human intelligence, assets, a whole variety. And what you have are, are basic field reports. So you would have people who were working with the GAN Army, 
And their perceptions at the ground level were probably very from case to case, but certainly must have been, in many cases, quite negative. That is, in other words, these guys will never fight, okay, that this, this is not a, a, an, an effective military force. I have no doubt that those reports, that someone can go along and look, we have reports in the field saying that this is going to happen, that these units were going to collapse. Anybody observing that at, at, at the ground level would probably have noticed that. Somebody had to. Okay. But that's not what your superiors want to hear. Your superiors further up the chain don't want reports that say that what we're doing isn't working. Okay, it was pretty much the same in Vietnam. That's mm. why in 1968, on the eve of Tet, we've rounded the corner. There's the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, it, 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 certainly the Viet Cong must be defeated because their level of operations have decreased. Not that they could possibly be planning a big attack that you know is going to take us completely by surprise. And sure enough, later there were people who go, no, they are planning an attack. But that wasn't what percolated up through the chain, and that's not what made it into the news, and that's not what affected policy, and that's not what senators and congressmen were briefed on in Washington. No, everything was going fine. Things are getting better. We're winning. That's what it is that you want to hear. And the basic thing is that when you tell people in power above you what they don't want to hear, what they'll simply do is ignore you. Now, of course, the Afghan forces ignominiously collapsed. You know, it was, I think, a, I think a few weeks ago I sent you a quote from an uh, uh, American military man who gave an uh, uh, interview to the to, uh, in Israeli press and saying, you know, that basically what the U.S. did, you know, to build an army was to go around and, and pretty much hand out money. So we handed out money. We, we paid Poor Afghan men who – what other jobs were there in the country? I mean, you're, we're not talking about a, a developed economy. We're talking about a country that had already racked for 30 years of war before that. So, you know, getting out a paycheck to be in the, in the Afghan National Army was, again, probably the best job you were going to get. But what you did was you handed out money, and you handed out costumes and weapons. You gave them a uniform. You gave them some kind of weapon, which more than likely to make more money, they would turn out and sell to their cousin in the Taliban. And then they would come back and collect another rifle. And that would happen over and over and over again. And their officers who were corrupt would know that. And one of the problems was that the officers who had the responsibility for paying their soldiers didn't pay them. Okay. You, you had to – I don't think this is the sole reason. I mean, they still were apparently getting fed. That might be enough reason to stay around. But it's not much reason – to die. Uh, it, well, here's a key difference between, and this is actually was used in terms of um, one of the questions was that when when ISIS first appeared, made its big appearance in Iraq. Remember, it it suddenly appeared and captured the northern Iraqi city of Mosul, mm-hmm. overran a major center. These were supposed to be a bunch of, bunch of you know. Uh, you know, terrorists out in the desert, and suddenly they capture this major city, and the Iraqi army, the Iraqi army units there essentially fled. So the question again was, well, well, how could that happen? And I thought there was a, an Iraqi Kurd who put it pretty simply. He goes, look, the soldiers in the Iraqi army, and this would be true for the soldiers in the Afghan army, were basically there for the paychecks. It was one of the few jobs around. The pay was relatively good. But what these guys wanted to do was to live through the day, go home to their families, have dinners, and spend the money they had. And they couldn't do that if they were dead. Nope. 
They had no incentive to sacrifice their lives for a government that they really didn't much believe in, and the paycheck ultimately wasn't that, wasn't that much. Now, on the other hand, good, bad, or indifferent, what were people like ISIS or even the Taliban fighting for? They are fighting for their religion as they see it, for their way of life, and they believe, many of them at least, that if they die in battle, they will go to paradise. Now, if you put any two groups of people, hmm. even in dis disparate numbers, up against each other, one group who basically wants to stay alive, and the other group which is willing to die in order to achieve their game and achieve their goal, who do you think is going to win? Not a contest. Uh, do we have time? No, we only got about three minutes. <clears throat> two minutes. I want to ask another question on the other side of the coming break, and we're going to bring Georgia Lambert on because I want to have a big picture from another dimension of what's going on over the last 20 years, which I think is an interesting line of, of uh, discussion. But recently I've seen news stories that Russia and China are now looking hungrily on the trillion dollars plus of mineral resources that are buried under Afghanistan soil, which for some reason in our 20-year occupation, we didn't seem, maybe I'm, I'm you know, bereft in terms of education in this direction, but we didn't seem to see any American you know, free enterprise efforts to develop these resources for the Afghan nation integrated into a world of commerce to where other people would have a stake in a peaceful, prosperous Afghanistan to ensure a flow of these materials, like, for instance, rare earths. Why did not we do that? And we can't answer now because we're basically up against a break. Let's kind of take a look at that when we return. My guest this morning, to be joined momentarily by Georgia Lambert, our Dr. Richard Spence, who is our resident historian, and um, Barbara Honiger, who, as I said, was the first woman to serve in a very high-level policy position, uh, other than, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, under the Reagan administration. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. On this Sunday night, Monday morning now from the Land of Enchantment. That's uh, Land of Enchantment music in the background. Hopi. Hopi flutes echoing over the plateaus on the Colorado Plateau in the upper upper parts of the, of the continental United States. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence, resident historian of the program. And Georgia Lambert is joining us, I believe. Georgia, are you with us? Georgia? Oh, I didn't do that. Are you here? I don't hear Georgia. And, of course, Barbara Honiger is with us. So while we get Georgia on the line, why don't I toss it back to uh, you guys, uh, Rick and uh, uh, Barbara. Why, if we evolved our Afghanistan adventure from a war on terror, you know, 11 years ago, we, quote, got bin Laden. He was hiding in Pakistan, which is intimately involved with the Taliban, as we've learned over some of these amazing historical perspectives from uh, uh, Rick uh, Spence. Why, if we were going to spend 20 years there effortlessly or or trying to effortlessly create um, a, a, a nation state, Nation building, as the term is called. Why didn't we call upon the fact that Afghanistan, according to these latest reports out of China and Russia, of course we've known this all along, has extraordinary mineral wealth in Afghanistan. We could have developed an extraordinary economic infrastructure that could then have been, you know, interwoven with the rest of the world. And the um, uh, economics is the foundation of any stable 
democratic society. Why didn't Rick, why didn't we do any of that? Why did we basically stay there as an occupying force? And when we left, the folks we left behind just went home. Well, the first thing presumes that we were actually there with the idea of building a stable, prosperous nation in Afghanistan. And I don't think that was ever, ever a goal in anyone's mind. That wasn't. It was part of, if there was anything about uh, rare earths or other mineral resources, those were to be developed for the benefit of American international corporations. The Afghans are just labor. So, I mean, let's, let's, you know, I think remove from the equation the idea that anybody really gave a damn about the Afghans, at least other than the Afghans themselves, and they had relatively little say about it. What we needed was to create a passable Afghan government that would basically be, I mean, let's face it, what, what, the, what the Afghan Islamic Republic was, was a puppet state set up by invaders and occupiers. That's what we did. Okay, good, bad, or indifferent, we invaded the place. We were not invited in by anybody. We then stayed, and one had to create some sort of fig leaf regime, and so the regime that was put up was a regime that never really collected taxes and didn't really effectively govern and didn't have much authority outside of Kabul and was a combination of greedy, corrupt local figures and, uh, and warlords of, of one you know, who had served. You know, one, one of the key figures in supporting the, the recent unlimited Afghan national government was a fellow by the name of Abdul Rashid Dostum, who was an Uzbek warlord from the north. This guy got to start out as a general for the communist Afghan government in the, the 1980s. He, he cut his teeth killing Mujahideen, some of whom later became Taliban, uh, that's one of the reasons why they hate him, and then he simply served whoever would pay him after that. So there, there really wasn't a functioning Afghan government. There was a fig leaf puppet state that was created that collapsed almost immediately. In the same way, you had this kind of fig leaf you know, puppet army, which, which wouldn't function either. It looked like there was something going on. So we weren't actually suppressing terrorism in any effective way. Uh, but then again, why didn't we develop mineral resources? Well, even if that had been the intention, in order to carry out any kind of real infrastructure development to get exploit those resources, you would first of all have to have some kind of general condition of peace because those resources aren't sitting in downtown Kabul. They're under mountains somewhere out in the vast countryside of Afghanistan. And the basic point was is that the U.S. and its uh, NATO helpers controlled the cities and some of the main roads. We didn't control the countryside. The Taliban did. So that would mean going in and taking controls of large areas of open countryside from an enemy that you couldn't chase down elsewhere. So you can't really develop industrial infrastructure in the midst of a war. That's the catch-22. Hmm. Okay. Barbara? You know, I, um, if I could, uh, I'd like to make a major point that I wasn't able to make before, and then I can try to answer that question. Okay. Uh, but the major point is this. Um, recently, Condoleezza Rice, to give you one example, um, who was, of course, National Security Advisor in the White House before, during, and after 9-11 in the George Bush-Cheney White House, Condoleezza Rice is now the um, director of the Hoover Institution, where I used to work at Stanford University. And she was on uh, a 
either MSNBC or ABC, one of the mainstream television networks, just the other day. And um, when we when we left, precipitously left Afghanistan, um, people were scrambling like Condoleezza Rice, scrambling around to try to find something to say that it was a success, something about it that we succeeded at. And the only thing she could come up with was, and this is what she said, well, don't forget, we actually succeeded in Afghanistan because we were in Afghanistan all of these 20 years. We haven't had another 9-11 type attack. This is an incredible success. However, for those of us in the 9-11 truth movement who are genuine scholars and really care about the facts, and we've dug and we've dug, and now with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, we are filing the forensic facts with the U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York about the Twin Towers, with the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia uh, about uh, against the FBI and the anthrax attacks. Uh, the bottom line is the, the Taliban or the uh, uh, al-Qaeda that was allegedly being given safe haven by Mullah Omar in Afghanistan didn't attack us to begin with. So there's not even a success there. If if they if if the original attack was an inside job, then of course, of course. there isn't yeah. going to be another attack unless the original inside job perpetrators feel in the future that it's in their interest to do so. So Condoleezza Rice, that was the only thing she could think of um, that would be be a success, and of course that's not a success either. Okay, so it's part of the original lie of, of, of how we got into this in the first place. So back to, you know, there is no such thing as a monolithic government. Governments have all kinds of different perspectives, people with different backgrounds, people of different intelligence, people with different connections. Once it became clear that we were going to be there for the long slog, there were voices, because I could, you know, I could say some of them myself, that said, well, we should, while we're there, try to change, you know, a 7th or 8th century society into something more like the 21st century. And an awful lot of efforts were, were expended in education, in, you know, <clears throat> women involved in all different levels of society, commerce, government. Uh, there were aid programs. There was a huge infusion, you know, where a lot of that money went, trillions of dollars into the Afghan economy and to the social fabric, why did nobody ever think to try to commercialize the one real resource that Afghanistan has, as opposed to opium, and do something, even in the midst of a war, you can set up enclaves. You can, you can basically, if, if enough people are benefiting from an activity, then they will band together to defend the activity, which is providing them with economic livelihood that's not in the military. That's not in the in the army. I just don't understand why not even pilot programs, as far as I know, were ever begun to look at how Afghanistan could run in the long term when we left. Unless, and this is the caveat, did we, meaning the deep state controllers, plan for us to leave? Well, I think another question is, our, how do we know that our so-called deep state didn't in fact uh, uh, take advantage of those resources that we don't know about while we were there. We, we certainly, we, we went in there in great part 
because of the Taliban, when they were in control, had had um, basically shut down the, the opium exports, uh, which undergird uh, the Western banking system, number one. And number two, um, Unical was trying to uh, get a pipeline, an oil pipeline or oil or natural gas pipeline, I'm not sure which, but a pipeline, uh, a, a uh, you know, fossil fuel pipeline uh, through Afghanistan. And um, Karzai, who became president, uh, had been uh, a consultant or worked for Unical. So it was it was about oil and gas, and it was about opium, getting the opium flowing again. Uh, let me bring in Georgia. You are with us, right? I am. Good evening. <laughs> Good Hi, evening. Georgia. Hello. Okay, let's take a perspective of the last 20 years from another dimension. Let's look at this from a very high-level uh, metaphysical perspective. The last 20 years have had an incredibly negative effect on American consciousness, on spirit, on, on attitudes, on you know, social mores, on, on every aspect of our society. We've gone to hell in a handbasket. I can see no real light at the end of the, those, those tunnels. What do you see? <laughs> well, uh, a couple of different things uh, have come to mind. Um, first of all, just just a, a little point of trivia here. You know how, Richard, we, in the past we've talked about how history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes sometimes? Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, 9-11 was the date of Washington's loss at Brandywine. Oh. Where we almost, almost lost the Revolutionary War. Huh. Wow. Um, anyway... Um, you know, just because lessons, regardless of how they're engineered or who engineers them, lessons are offered to humanity in consciousness. It doesn't always mean humanity chooses to listen to those lessons or to pay attention to those lessons. Certainly one of the lessons that we could have learned from and probably did not was the idea that nation building doesn't work because you cannot force consciousness to be what it isn't. And nations have tried to do this over the centuries, and it never works. It didn't work this time, and it probably won't work the next time. The other thing that I noticed is, you know, we're dealing with militant Islam, we forget that every life form, and this includes uh, a religious or philosophical system, is a life form, and it unfolds in stages. If we look at the three peoples of the book, the um, Judaic religion, the Christianity, and Islam, who share the same prophets, share the same land, and are ready to slaughter each other, uh, if we look at Judaism, which is the oldest, through its militant stage a long time ago, well, maybe not so long time ago, but <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you look at the Old Testament, it's filled with wars and, you know, just horrid things. Christianity went through its militant phase with the Crusades and the Inquisition. Uh, Islam is the newest as a religion, and it's going through its militant phase. 
but the positive upside is that they, we do have a pattern where these three religions have gotten along. And that was in the golden age of Spain when they were building the Alhambra. You had Jews and Christians and Muslims living together, interacting, and it wasn't very short, it was pretty short-lived, but it worked. And that's a pattern that can be built on that has yet to unfold. And the other thing is that, you know, regardless of the fact that nation building doesn't really work and we can't force consciousness to grow, something did happen. And you mentioned this before, Richard, and that is that for 20 years, women in the Middle East got a view of another vista. And that had some kind of effect to be unfolded how in the future we'll have to see but that changed the field in that part of the world hmm so the, go ahead barbara yeah um uh, by the way i do have to go on record here richard you you have vastly increased my bio uh when you introduced me i i was not the only woman in a high level policy position by any means Uh, in the Reagan administration, and certainly not at the level of Eleanor Roosevelt. I appreciate the plug, but it isn't true. (laughs) I was a policy analyst in the West Wing of the White House, and I was the special assistant to the president, which was, you know, pretty high up. It was the third level down. Um, But I was was uniquely in a position um, where I was never asked. I knew a tremendous amount. I saw a tremendous amount. I was able to do a tremendous amount, but never, I wasn't high enough to ever have to sign any kind of a non-disclosure or classification agreement. And so I'm able to talk. Um, so anyway, uh, that's, that's number one. Um, but, uh, but I would like to say that one of my roles in the Reagan administration, um, I had uh, two major hats, as you know. Uh, one of them was... Um, I was in, I was uh, both in the White House and the Department of Justice. I was in charge of the so-called Equal Rights Amendment Alternative. And I was the highest ranking political appointee in the federal government for equal rights for women and girls. And so um, I take a, um, I take, and, and by the way, I was the first public resignation of conscience from the Reagan White House and administration exposing the, uh, the complete sham and perfidy of their alleged DRA alternative uh, to about 10 days of national and international publicity in late August of 1983. Um, so, you know, they weren't serious about it, but I was. Uh, so I, I take I take equality very seriously, equality under the law, equality under the Constitution. And uh, I do agree with, uh, with Georgia that uh, you can't put the uh, gender equality genie back in the bottle. It's impossible. Uh, as they say, uh, you know, uh, how are you going to keep them back on the farm after they've seen Terry, right? Hmm. <laughs> so okay, there are going to be consequences in the Middle East and throughout the world. Yeah, let me, let, me, let, me, let me turn back to Rick, you know, as our historian here, because do you, can you think of other models where one – and I don't want to use the archaic term nation because as you laid out so elegantly in the you know, second half hour, uh, the Hundred Years' War was more between social systems as opposed to clearly defined nations. But 
other examples of where one social system occupied or colonized another, at least a generation if not longer, and when it left, what was the impact of the colonizing power on the colonized power, and did it have long-term effects, A, and did it have long-term positive effects, B, which is what I think Georgia and Barbara and I are all arguing is, is going to happen because of our mere presence for 20 years with all those 800,000 young people and all those interrelated families and all those people now that don't want to leave Afghanistan because they have roots. Where do we get off thinking that our culture is so superior in every respect that we have no, 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 I the right no, no, or no, no, obligation no, 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 to go I, in and I, destroy Rick, Rick, a Rick, society I, I, I did in not the say, name of remaking? I carefully okay. did not say that. I said impact right. and influence. I didn't put a um, value judgment on the influence. Well, but you kind of have to have that idea to begin with. They're going to go in and we're, we're going to change. There are things about this to say, look, there would probably be all kinds of things about traditional Afghan tribal society that would horrify Americans or other Westerners. Fine. In the same way that things that we do horrify and disgust them. But here's one of the things I would think to do. Go around and look around downtown Portland today or go to any large cities where you've got tent villages springing out where the number of homeless and nomads. Yeah, San Francisco, are Los Angeles. San Francisco, where people defecate on the street, where that is now normal. And then tell me, what is it that you're selling when you go to somewhere else? You want to import all the rest of this in terms of, of American society? What is it that we're so... If Americans were, from this is what we started, if we were happy and content and unified and prosperous, then we might really have something that we could sell. But we're not. We are a nation which is increasingly divided. We are a nation which people are not becoming wealthier, unless you're Elon Musk and a few others, and is becoming poorer. So... What is it that we have? I mean, true. I mean, the presence there. I mean, we brought a lot of things into Kabul, like strip clubs. Is that an improvement? <laughs> All right. Is it an improvement for Afghan women to come in from the village and get a job as exotic dancers in a club or prostitutes in Kabul? I mean, there is. There, it's not. It, it's not only that, but it is that. All right. Both of those things are happening. There are Afghan women who are getting jobs in the administration, learning practical skills, and there are other ones who are becoming camp follower prostitutes and working in strip clubs in Kabul to entertain the, the foreign occupiers. All right? we, we, bring, we bring everything from our culture where we go. We just don't bring the best. We bring the worst. We bring all of it. And Well, but, 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 from the but skip, hang on, hang on. Let, right. let me stop you there. Because at the same time that I'm not saying you're wrong, you know, freedom is messy. I think somebody said that once. And when you have women who are strippers, you also have women who were primetime anchors on Afghanistan official television. Well, how many? Five? Yeah, but they become role they, models. It's like the idea the other how day. Many people, how many on. people have televisions in Afghanistan? I have no idea. I'm well, sure there's I mean, that piece of data somewhere with, with, uh, with Elon Musk's satellite system, the Starlink program, Every village will be able to have direct access to the world for pennies. Well, that, 
this is it. We look at something that reflects a picture of us or an ideal picture of us. The Afghans, are, they're, they're more like us, therefore that's good. In any way in which they model or ape our behavior, that's good. We identify everything we do and everything we well, believe with I progress. We that's talk- just our conceit. It's not reality. Well, but I would argue there are some fundamentals. There are some absolutes, like equality. We were talking, coming off of Georgia and Barbara's conversation, that the one thing we left in our wake is a lot of Afghan women who want to be equal to men in their society. Now, I argue that's a good thing. You argue it comes with bad things, but all this stuff comes with bad things inevitably. It's, it's now a matter for the Taliban to deal with. Or the women of Af- or, they will crush or the women of Af- Afghanistan who have mounted several miles long marches in a concerted effort to stand up for their rights in a feudalistic sixth or seventh century society, i.e., the Taliban dominated rule. They will they will grant women the rights that they deem that God has dreamed appropriate under the Holy Quran. That's their way of looking at it. Didn't you? Their, their, their argument will be is that it's not us who's making these rules. It is God who has made these rules. Well, isn't that always the excuse? <clears throat> it's always God did it, or in some sense the devil. It's also the, also the excuse in almost all religions, which aren't, in my opinion, are not theologies. They're actually theologies, um, and that's true of most Christianity. It's certainly true of a lot of uh, Christian especially Christian evangelical uh, organizations and churches. Um, one, of the, one of the things that shocked me the most when I was in the Reagan White House is the, the uh, federal government's top uh, political appointee uh, to try to achieve equal rights for women and girls. Um, my, my job uh, in the United States of America in the early 1980s in the White House and the Justice Department uh, was to... Uh, I was in charge of what was called the ERA alternative, and uh, my job was to identify every single example in all then 47 departments and agencies of the federal government, all laws in the U.S. Code, all policies, practices, and procedures, and the entire Code of Federal Regulations um, of any uh, any of those that discriminated uh, either way on the basis of gender, and of course they were almost 99.9% uh, against females uh, in our own laws. And uh, th- we're not that different from Afghanistan. Uh, most people don't understand that in the United States of America, it was only in the early 1970s that there was a Supreme Court case for the very first time. And the, um, the, the woman who was the plaintiff was an, was an Air Force officer, a female Air Force officer. And uh, in that case, in the early 1970s, the first time the Supreme Court uh, specifically uh, ruled in an opinion uh, that uh, female citizens were persons under the 14th Amendment. And in Canada in 1982, as I recall the year, um, Canada got its own constitution. You know, England doesn't have a formal constitution. Uh, but Canada uh, got its own constitution in 1982, and in the debate uh, leading up to the formalization uh, and ratification of their constitution, 
the women of Canada had to fight to be defined as persons in the Canadian Constitution in 1982. Fascinating. Hey, we're at the top. We are are not that different. Women have had to fight for equality forever. We are at the bottom of the hour. We shall return to this because if there's been any lasting effect of the United States occupation of Afghanistan for 20 years, I would argue that it's potentially the ultimate revolution of women in Afghan society. And we're also already seeing very dramatic and very visible demonstrations of women. And we're not seeing the same repressive measures that we saw 20 years ago. Are there repressive measures? Yes, but they're different. They're more nuanced and there is daylight. At least I would argue that when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. The next half hour is going to be very interesting. Fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Another technical glitch here on the other side of midnight. Oh, what else is new? Anyway, um, I would argue that the lasting Im- Im- impact of U.S. You know, involvement in Afghanistan has to do with the place of women in Afghan society. And by reflection, I mean, when you look at what Texas just did in terms of uh, uh, Roe versus Wade and the extraordinary over-the-top 
you know, deputizing of vigilantes anywhere in the United States, or I think under the law anywhere in the world, who can go and attack women and all the all the ancillary helpers for a woman getting an abortion in Texas that we have taken in terms of our own culture, this gigantic but very visible step backward, and the battle is joined. This really comes down in both societies to a war of men against women. And in that sense, there is this incredible solidarity between the women of Afghanistan and the women of the so-called much vaunted and far superior United States of America. Thoughts? Well, uh, the good news is the good news is is uh, Lawrence Tribe. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, seen this on uh, MSNBC, but uh, you know the world famous uh, constitutional law professor and, and attorney Lawrence Tribe. Um, he actually argued a case. I can't remember the name of the case, um, but uh, but he pointed out that he actually won a case uh, that can be used by Merrick Garland and and the Solicitor General of the United States to, uh, you know, completely overturn um, the, uh, the this SB-8 so-called uh, six-week six uh, abortion th- law in Texas. This was in Boston. Um, he was uh, – uh, it, it was the Commonwealth of Massachusetts against um, this particular – a church-affiliated group across the street from a tavern, and, right. and they were able, under under Massachusetts law, to basically decide whether liquor could be served uh, in Massachusetts in these establishments. And so, what the Supreme Court eventually ruled was that delegating that power from government, the government of the state of Massachusetts, to an individual private party a church violated the constitution and i believe and i think tribe is right that exactly the same parallel exists with this vigilante aspect of the of the law in texas of course it does yes but the current supreme court in not ruling to put a stay on the texas law while this is all adjudicated is very disturbing and one wonders if the court is going to follow precedent that tribe case in Massachusetts, which definitely proved abdicate its responsibilities and basically deputize millions of private citizens to become vigilantes. I mean, think of the parallel if, if the Second Amendment were attacked, if some state passed a, uh, you know, a law that said basically that uh, gun ownership by anybody is now illegal. And instead of enforcing it at the state level, National Guard, state police, sheriffs, whatever, they deputize citizens with their own guns to, inf- I mean, this becomes such a nightmare constitutionally to say nothing, you know, culturally or legally, that one wonders if the current court position in not staying the Texas law was while they were frantically thinking up a way not to go down this rabbit hole. Right. Well, that, that, um, the Supreme Court allowed the uh, SB8, the Senate Bill 8, to go forward um, to be uh, to go forward in Texas, while the uh, cases against it percolated up uh, through the lower courts. However, 
the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department has now um, uh, filed an emergency uh, uh, stay, a request for an emergency uh, stay uh, to the Supreme Court. And I don't believe the Supreme Court has ruled on that yet, but it, but it's an emergency request by the U.S. Justice Department. They're, they're going to rule very quickly, I believe. Um, Rick, let, let's go back to what you were saying. Would you agree that, in fact, the position of women in Afghan society is probably going to be the most interesting aspect of our occupation long term? I'm not sure. I mean, I I think you're still trying to find some sort of redeeming factor. No, I'm I'm talking about a fact. What was there was a completely unnecessary, unredeemable squandering of lives and money. All right. There are all kinds of cultural influences that have come in. Mean, the United States is not the only occupier in Afghanistan. There have been people coming in and out of there for millennia, and all of them have impacts on the culture. Is this going to set off some sort of, of wave of, of female liberation and equality in Afghanistan? Not anytime soon. Let's be realistic. Okay. Then can it incrementally change over time? Sure it will. Everything's always incrementally changing over time. How much the American influence will have over that is is impossible to say. This much will be true. Over time the position of women in Afghan society will change in the way that it's constantly evolved to a greater or lesser degree. But I don't think that we can in any way assign ourselves a, a – congratulate ourselves that this, this is the great thing that we managed to achieve because that's still also, you know, we're, we're – we're, everything is based on the perception that our culture is right and everyone else's is weird. Mm, I don't know whether that – Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's what it comes to. We, we see something. This is the thing I find. People talk about all the wonders – the wonders of diversity and the wonders of all the diverse culture and all the cool, interesting, artistic things people do. Well, that's true until, and I've seen this happen over and over again, until someone encounters something in this culture that horrifies them or disgusts them. And sooner or later, they will come across a custom that they simply cannot abide. And that, of course, means that it has to be changed. And that's really kind of an arrogant assumption for any country or people to make, that you have such a lofty position that you can decree what is right and wrong for people to live in. Okay, I'm going to, I mean, defer, I mean, I'm going to defer to one of the women on the panel. Well, I mean, here's, a, here's a couple of, of, of examples of things that don't deal with the position of women, but part of what you were dealing with in Afghanistan. There were U.S. military engineers who wanted to win the hearts and minds of people living around the Korangol Valley, which is near the Pakistani border, a a very important strategic area, kind of a a Taliban hotbed. And they thought that one of the things they could do is that they could build a road into this valley, that they could open up all these villages that had never had a regular road. You couldn't drive a truck into the place. You had to helicopter everything in and out. Now, Keep in mind, the Afghans weren't stupid, and they realized that the actual purpose for building the road is that it would be easier for the U.S. military to also move men and equipment in and out of the valley. But they were trying to sell this to the village elders on the ground that once you have the road, see, this will open you up to trade. It will bring in, you know, again, the, the appeal to econo- greater economic opportunity and potential prosperity. And they couldn't do it. 
the locals didn't want the road. They continually resisted it. And eventually, one of the American officers simply tried to, through his translators, to figure out what they're, I was like, we're offering to come in and build a road into your valley and connect you with the outside world and you don't want it. And their basic answer to that was that we don't want to. There's a reason why there's no road. There's a reason why in the last 6,000 years we've never built a road because we don't want to make it easy to come in and out of the valley. Because when when people come in and out of our valley, they're almost always people like you who come with guns to occupy us and tell us what to do. We like the – now, whether this is right or wrong, their view was – we benefit more from our isolation than we do from the connect- connectedness we would have through the road. So, no, we don't want to make it easier for strangers to come in and out of our territory. The other example was from an aid worker, and he went into a remote Afghan village where all the water basically came from a sluggish creek in which the animals defecated and urinated at will. It was dirty. You know, from, from a Western standpoint, this was filthy water. But this was the water the people had. They go, look, I know what we'll do. We'll give these people clean water. So came in, and helicopters would arrive, and the helicopters would drop very large wooden pallets stacked full of bottled, clean bottled water. So what? And, and all of these, these bottles were also wrapped in, in plastic. So, so what happened? Well, the first thing that happened is that the local strongman, the local warlord, showed up with his gunman. And he took all the all the water off the pallets, and then they took the pallets because the pallets are sawn, finished wood that can be used for building material. And in a place where there isn't a lot of that, that's valuable. So the warlord came and took the most valuable thing as he saw it, which was the wood. Then some other men and others came in, and they they took the the plastic wrap because that could be used for all kinds of things like insulation. You can even put it in the soles of your shoes. That was valuable. Now, the least valuable thing that was left lying there in the mud was the bottled water. And then the women came out. They now had their chance to take the bottled water. And what did they do? They opened every bottle and they poured out the water. And now they had nifty plastic containers to put other things in, including water from the creek. Why didn't they like the bottled water? Because it tasted funny. And after all, it didn't make them sick anymore. And and this went on, and because all the water disappeared, the reports back was that well that, that they've taken the water, and so they're just there was these you know helicopters that considerable sense were bringing water into a village, and somewhere up the line it was being reported that see we're supplying this this village with clean water they never had before, and that wasn't what was happening at all. Nobody in the village wanted the water, but they'd take the wood and the plastic wrap and the plastic bottles if you were going to keep giving it to them. At the risk of bringing up an ancient cliche, <clears throat> if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. If you give him a fishing pole, he eats forever. Why didn't the aid people build them wells? Well, it depends upon how much groundwater there is. The people, weren't, from their view, they weren't lacking for water. They had water. They had the same water they'd had last week and last year and last 10 for years. And every now and then somebody might die of typhoid, but then, you know, people are dying of all kinds of things around you. You see, this is it. Nobody in that village asked anybody to send in these pallets of water or to build them a well. 
they didn't lack for water. Only from our perception did they, they didn't have water that we, the water there was from our standpoint unacceptable. And therefore we decided to bring their water up to our standards, which nobody asked for and nobody wanted. And the whole thing was a total waste of time. Which goes back and to George's point. You cannot uplift a culture from the top down. It has to be from the bottom up. Well, but, right. to, but just a minute. R- uh, Rick is making the point that it is our perspective only uh, that you describe that as uplifting the culture. Uh, people's traditions, they, they don't want to give up their traditions. And um, to answer your question, Richard, I agree with, uh, with Richard the other Richard, Um, I agree uh, with Richard Spencer that there's not going to be anytime soon a major change in the position of women in Afghanistan. Um, However, I don't think that the American presence is going to have any more lasting impact than the British or the Russians or the Soviets. Um, However, um, where is that noise coming from? I don't know. I don't hear a noise. Um, and anyway, my, my my point is is that um, I do believe that the cat, however, is out of the bag. That the idea, uh, the, that the most fundamental threat to the religious worldview, which is a basically a theology, it's not a theology, it's a theology. How many how many religions? The religions of the book absolutely see God as the, the pinnacle of the hierarchy of the universe as a male. No question about it. Um, so, so these theologies are theologies, and the most dangerous thing to all theologies or theologies it is genuine uh, uh, equality of the genders. It is far more fundamental than racial discrimination, actually. Far more fundamental and far more, far more fundamental and far more ancient. And so, I agree with you, Richard, that what we are experiencing in the world right now um, is a radical change in the relationship between males and females, human beings. Um, And I I believe that that is fundamental about what is happening in the United States. And that's why I believe that the abortion issue is what is really at the center of what divides America. And that I hope that you and I can do a program in the future, Richard, over how to, uh, how to prevent uh, the divide over the abortion issue from actually going into a shooting civil war. Um, I'd like to do that. No, that sounds like a very worthwhile program. Georgia, I want to bring you back in here because we're talking ultimately consciousness. Um, I think there's a large group of women, probably only in the cities, who have tasted for 20 years. They've grown up, you know, if they were just babies or not even born when we invaded. They've now in their 20s. And there's a whole tier of Afghan society which is dependent on these women because the men have not been trained to do what women were doing. And you can see that at the most interesting tip of the spear in terms of the all-women Afghanistan robotic team that went to the Olympics and has won several world-class competitions against males and are a force to be reckoned with in terms of social media, media attention, and role models into Afghanistan. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. 
I could be wrong. What do you think? Well, Richard, can I can I yeah, add something yeah, here sure. from another historical perspective? Sure. There's also this idea that this, the empowerment of the change in women's status, however you want to describe it, only began with the American occupation. The well, it actually went back, it went back to the 1950s and 60s, but it was a tiny, Yeah, there was, tiny there was some percentage. change then, but, but under the Afghan communist regime, under, under the Soviet puppet state from 79 to 89, that regime you know, officially proclaimed, didn't create, but it proclaimed the equality of women. And, you know, one of the things they were following the Soviet model is that they, well, put it, but they, they managed to uh, exploit women's labor in various ways that it hadn't been done before. There's various ways of looking at it, but they, they moved women into, into areas of public life and occupations that hadn't been. So this didn't really begin with us. That's correct. So it's not something that just didn't happen then. And one of the things that that also contributed to, the reality is, is that it was that kind of change or challenge to the existing order that the Soviet-backed regime created that generated the religious-based rebellion of the Mujahideen that eventually morphed into the Taliban, a rebellion which we supported. Mm, that was, you know, that was when we were back in the Mujahideen. Remember those heroic freedom fighters against the uh, awful heel of the against the Bolshevik boot, um, you know, we were actually, in that case, backing those who wanted to, well, from the standpoint, wanted to keep women in their traditional place as opposed to a regime that whatever its other aspects had was making some attempts to free them from that. Barbara, I think it's your headset. I think there's a, a short or something in your headset, I think that's where that noise is coming from. I, I don't think so. I don't have a headset. Well, something is doing it. And All right, so you wanted to say something. Go ahead. Uh, are you talking to me? Yes. Uh, are, are, is there some problem with the audio? No, you, we can hear you fine. Okay, because I, I, I have not heard through the entire program any background noise. Um, well, uh, what I would like to do is, is take us back in the last... Uh, few minutes. I'll take, I'll take about 30 seconds um, here approximately to uh, go back to 9-11 and to let you know that uh, on just in this month, uh, September 4th through 6th, uh, the 9-11 Truth Movement paid for uh, a new poll uh, by an outfit called Pulse Opinion Research, LLC, from September 4th to 6th. Um, and I'm going to give you the poll results here in a second. Uh, with a plus or minus three margin of error at the 95% confidence level, uh, statistically. And this is what we learned about the position, the beliefs of the American public, how successful has the 9-11 truth movement been? And I argue that we've been amazingly successful. The results of the poll, just as September 4th through 6th of 2021, 37% of American adults, and this is, of course, inferential from the, the poll sample, 37% of American adults serious doubts about, about the official story of the destruction of the Twin Towers being due to the impact of the plane and the fires therefrom. More than one-third, 35% of American adults, believe that the U.S. government either knew the attacks were coming and let them happen, or 22% believe that 
believes that components of the U.S. government helped plan the attack itself. In other words, were complicit in the attack. Almost 60% of the American public this month, September 2021, 58% support a new and independent the full subpoena power under a testimony investigation of 9-11. So I think that that, I think we've been amazingly successful and we're never going to give up. <laughs> so I just wanted to, to, to positive. Well, I have a question. If, if those two numbers are real, 37% believe it was either an inside job or our guys let it happen. But 60% want a new investigation, meaning you know, if you take 37 from 100, you get whatever that remainder is, 60-some percent. Why do the people who are satisfied with the official explanation have such a huge overlap with the percentage, 60% that want a new investigation? If, if, the, if the original 9-11 commission, you know, answered every possible question in their minds, why do they want a new investigation? In other words, I think that 37% number is much lower than it really is, but there are people that don't want to admit that they think it was an inside job or they're lingering. Well, I, I haven't. Uh, the, the answer to that, I believe, is that the the the, the over one third, the thirty five percent, who believe the U.S. government either knew the attacks were going to happen or let them happen. Um, that that, and uh, those are the ones who who take it who who believe um, that seriously. Um, Obviously, the difference between 35% and 58% that, are, that support a new investigation, a new public investigation, means that the difference between 35 and 58%, what's that, 23% or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, about a quarter, uh, an additional quarter of the American adult public um, has doubts. They may not be as productive. That's they what I work. was getting at, that, yeah. the, that the subliminal doubts are much bigger than people willing to express in a poll. Yes, and let me let me just end by saying that if you've got almost 60% of the American public doubting the official line of the government about who attacked America on 9-11, killed almost 3,000 people, and caused trillions of dollars in, uh, in our national treasure, and all of this blood, uh, uh, loss of life, uh, both here and in the Middle East, and millions of people displaced, and all of the horrible things that have happened. Um, no wonder, no wonder people are saying, why were we in Afghanistan to begin with? There was no real purpose for that war, certainly not the purpose that we have been told. And they know that. They know that. I want to go to Georgia, who is very quiet, <clears throat> sometimes too quiet, <laughs> and get back to this idea of consciousness and the equality of women as sparked by 20 years of our presence there the preceding Soviet occupation notwithstanding, you know, some of these things have a long runway. What's going to happen to literally millions of people embedded in Afghan society who have seen the promised land and now are being forced at gunpoint in many cases to go back? What ultimately happens to that change of consciousness that has women equal to men in a seventh century society? In, in any culture, there are three big branches that should work together and almost never do. And those are the political forces, the religious forces, and the economic forces. 
Um, an example of this would be in India, where they believe in reincarnation, where they believe that the soul is is both in masculine and feminine bodies at different times, they're still killing their girl babies. Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. In Afghanistan, we have the economic wealth of trained women in professions that add to the society coming up against the religious fundamentalism. Which one is going to win? It depends on what happens in the next few decades. We'll just have to wait and see. But as was said before, the genie can't put be put back in the bottle. There is a change of consciousness. How fast that's going to unfold, we just have to see. And the same thing is true in this country. We're just doing the same thing between political, economic, and religious conflicts. Which ones are going to win out? we got to wait and see. Wow. Okay. So, go, Barbara, go ahead. No, I agree. Um, however, I we only have 30 seconds. I I want to thank my guest this morning, Dr. Richard Spence, uh, our resident historian, and uh, George Lambert, who is our resident metaphysician, and Barbara Honiger, who I, I guess, Barbara, you're our resident policy expert, having actually worked for an uh, elected you know, U.S. governmental administration. Uh, for a very interesting perspective, three perspectives on what's happened over the last 20 years. The program was not long enough for me to get to some of the more interesting things, which is what happens if you extend the time frame backward. And I guess we're going to have to do that in another program. So it's Sunday night, Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. Uh, next weekend, we're going to be doing, as I said on Saturday, a deep dive into the Musk uh, all civilian space mission with some surprises from Mars and Sunday. Well, I'm working on something and I won't know for a couple of days until it succeeds, but I'll let you know until then. Remember third star on the left straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. <laughs>